Grab your Bibles, turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Now, I know what you're thinking, Lamentations, you made that up. No, no, I didn't. It really is in there. So open your Bibles to the table of contents, and uh, you'll want to turn to, uh, it's, it's right after Jeremiah, so Psalms is right in the middle. Turn right a little bit, Jeremiah's a longer book, um, and then uh, Lamentations is a five-chapter book to the right of it. So Lamentations chapter 3, I failed to look it up in the Pew Bibles. Um, Lamentations 3. 727. What? 727. 727. There you go. Well, that was quick. You like Bible drill quick there. <laughs> That's pretty good. Is that a wanna quickness there? Bible drills. Bible drills? I, I was a Bible drill kid. State champion. Six years in a row. And so when you win states for six years, you have to become a preacher. It's, 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 it's in the Baptist faith and message. So, you know, Lamentations chapter three. So if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we want to read the first 24 verses. Jeremiah writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse one. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a beggar lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove me into my kidneys, the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So what is my hope from the Lord? Remember my affliction and my wanderings the warm wood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. As always, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet. Your word would transform who we are and how we live and how we see the world, especially in a time of pandemic and chaos. May we see Christ. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. Would you imagine what it would have been like after World War II, to return home after your homeland has been completely ravished by war. Some places, of course, were worse than others. Most notable, of course, would be Hiroshima and Nagasaki, obviously just completely wiped off, off, off the map. But, but one in particular is noteworthy, was, was particularly uh, uh, directed uh, by the Nazis, was in Warsaw, which is a Polish city. If you go and you can pull up the pictures quite easily. In fact, if you were, I'm guessing, just Google image uh, of destruction, World War II destruction, the chances are you're going to get black and white still images from Warsaw. 
I mean, the, the destruction that the Nazis had, had brought onto these innocent people was, was quite complete. In fact, some es- estimates will say that about 85% of the city's historic center was wiped out. You can look at other estimates that will say anywhere between 70 to 90% of homes and businesses and parks and roads and buildings just reduced to stone and rubble. Just completely wiped out all because of the bombings and the war of the Second Great War of the 20th century. I want you to imagine, if you will, if, if someone were to enter to the city, come to the heart of the rubble, may, maybe a family, maybe, maybe a group of Christians, maybe a, a small country church entering into the city gates, walking to the heart of, of where they are surrounded in a crater of, of, of rubble, and then they all held hands and they began to sing, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat their sounding joy. I think we would all say that's borderline inappropriate. How can one sing of joy to the world amid such, such chaos, such ravishing, such, such rubble, such violence and war and injustice and oppression? How can we ever sing anything like that? Well, the answer is, is that that is exactly what Jeremiah does here. There is a reason why Lamentations is rarely read and even more rarely uh, preached from. It's a depressing book. Let's be honest. The book is literally called Lamentations, right? You're like, boy, I could really use a pick-me-up. There's a book called Grief. I think I'll read it. Because Charlie Brown taught us that there is such a thing as good grief. Amen, Right? That's a funny joke. But you think about it. This is the way we approach life in general. So, so let me use the illustration of, of me as a sports fan. Right? I found that, that if, if my team is playing really well, they're winning a lot of games, and, and they could go far in the playoffs or in March or whatever it might be, what I'll find myself doing is hanging on every play. Every second of the game. And, and I'll, I'll follow the team. I'll get to know the players. I'll follow them online. And, and I'll read every quote and, and follow every article. I mean, I'm really engaged because of success. But if they're not any good, oh, well, I missed the game. They weren't going to win anyways. Who do I care who the starting linebacker is? He ain't going nowhere. He'll be replaced by next year's recruiting class. I find myself that when things aren't going well, yeah, my interest level is, is, is down quite a bit. You see, we don't like to engage with grief and misfortune. But Lamentations, by its very name, is a book of grief. But who can blame the writer considering his context? It's easy for us to see the destruction of Jerusalem and dispersion of the Jewish people as just another historic moment. But for those who experienced it, it was an unforgettable and earth-shattering experience. In fact, let let us jump out of Lamentations briefly and consider another writer. We don't know who wrote this. In Psalm 137, if you read that psalm, the the, the last verse is the verse that most people talk about. But those first four verses is particularly noteworthy considering it's in the same context as Lamentations. Where the writer has been dispersed and is reflecting on life post-Jerusalem. He writes, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing 
of the Lord's song in a foreign land. Don't underestimate that to the Jews, geography is theology. They believed that Judea was the promised land. And thus it was here in this tract of land in the Middle East that they believed that God had given them to their forefathers. They were called to inherit and to pass on. And in the center of this land was God himself. The entire city was was organized around the reality that when the nations come in, when the people come in, and the closer they get into Jerusalem, the closer they are to God. But the moment that the walls come tumbling down, the, the, the goal, is, is taken out of the Lord's house and the, 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 the temple itself is left to rubble, then they, they begin to realize that that feeling of abandonment is very real. God has abandoned them. And so what we get in, the, in Lamentations is an exploration of that new world. And so Jeremiah explores both the why and the what now following the destruction of the temple. The why is quite obvious. God's just judgment towards a wicked and wayward people. The what now is less clear. Lamentations is thus broken down into five separate chapters. Technically, it's broken down into five poems. We call them chapters because we, we've added chapters to the Bible, but there's really five separate poems. And, and the way it's written is quite fascinating. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, the four of the five poems, are, 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 they're all acrostics, but 1, 2, three, or one, two 4, and 5, are, are every verse is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, So if, if this were English, verse 1 of chapter 1 is A. So the first word starts with A. Verse 2 will start with B. Verse 3, so chapter 1 is like that. Chapter 2 is like that. Chapter 4 is like that. Chapter 5 is like that. So you'll notice the limitations. 1, 2, 4, and 5 are about equal length, but chapter 3 is literally three times longer. And the reason is because in chapter 3, uh, every third verse is an acrostic. So verse 1 starts with the Hebrew, the first letter, Aleph. Uh, verse 2, or verse 4 rather, will be the Hebrew letter Beit, and then three verses later, Gimel, then Dalit, and so on and so forth. But if you want another example of this, it's more common in the Bible, you may think. Uh, on, in your spare time, I mean state workers, you haven't worked all week, so, so uh, you should have plenty of spare time. Um, look at Psalm 119. Most of your translations, particularly your more modern ones, you may actually have the Hebrew letter or have it written out, all live, as opposed to the squiggly lines, uh, with each section. I believe it's the entire uh, alphabet, each section. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible because you're going through the Hebrew alphabet uh, in, in expressing what the psalmist believes about the word of God. The reason this detail is so important with Lamentations is because of, of what it does in the poem. Can I highlight two reasons why that little detail is important? The first is because it allows the author to lament. One of the things I've found in, in dealing with families and individuals who have lost loved ones or have received bad news or a terrible diagnosis or something like that, in this moment of pain and travail, I, I remind them of what Jeremiah did here. Jeremiah slowly and painstakingly worked over time to see to it that the words he was communicating were the right words he was trying to communicate. Instead of lashing out in anger or pain, he slowly spoke to God. He slowly cried out to God in a very precise way from A to Z to share what was on his heart and mind to God. 
this is similar to what C.S. Lewis does in one of his signature classics, a little teeny tiny book, about 60 pages long, called A Grief Observed. It's a striking book, and, and, and he writes it after the death of his wife named Joy. And so he literally loses Joy after Joy dies. And he writes early on, he says, Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery shadow or reflection The fact you don't merely suffer, but have to keep on thinking about the fact you are suffering only makes it worse. There is something healing to it, isn't it? To finally slowly work your way through the pain. And can I give you another reason why why this little detail is so important to Lamentations? It's because Jeremiah, in going about his poetry this way, is bringing order to a very chaotic world. He is putting the pieces back together. All around him is violence, chaos, and uncertainty. But as he expresses in these five separate prayers to God, he is able to bring back to his soul a sense of order. Well, let's this quickly. We have to do it quickly. Look at the text. Verses 1 through 3, which is the begins with the Hebrew uh, letter Aleph, right? Um, I just want to ask you, what words stick out to you in this poem? For me, verse 1 is that word affliction. I am the man who's seen affliction. Verse 2, darkness without any light. Verse 3, he feels as if God is, is against him the whole day long. Again, Lewis in A Grief Observed, which is a sort of journal after the death of his wife. He says, for the greater the love, the greater the grief. The stronger the faith, the more savagely will Satan storm its fortress. This is exactly what Jeremiah is is expressing here. I am a man of affliction. I'm in darkness without any light. I feel as if God himself, let alone the world, is is against me. What about verses four to six, which begins with bait, or or in in our English, it would be B. What descriptions stick out to you? Verse 4, my skin waste away, my bones are broken within me, I'm besieged, I'm enveloped, a bitterness and tribulation. Verse 6, darkness like the, the dead of long ago. What striking descriptions. Verses 7 to 9, what expressions stick out to you? He feels walled there in verse 7 where he cannot escape his pain. Verse 8, he, he, he feels as God has shut him out from his prayers. He, he can cry out all the day long, but it will go to a deaf heir. Verse 9, his ways are blocked. And thus the writer is expressing the, the sense of silence we've all had amid our travails, isn't it? He feels God is silent amid his suffering. Again, this is Lewis. All of these are taken from the same book. He writes, quote, When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special, no sort of no answer. It is not a locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, peace, child. You don't understand. Verses 10 through 12, what sort of metaphors stick out to you? Notice in verse 10, he describes a bear and a lion. And these, this, this metaphorical bear, this, this proverbial lion, what is it there in verse 11? They're going to tear him to pieces. What we see here is the lamenter is reflecting on the pain of suffering. Truth is, his emotional agony here is compared to physical suffering. I think we would all agree that emotional suffering is often far worse. Again, Lewis here, so helpful. What is grief compared with physical pain, he asks? Whatever fools may say, the body can suffer 20 times more than the mind. What about verses 13 to 15? What sort of turmoil sticks out to you? 
Notice he speaks of being a laughing song. That, that is reflected in Psalm 137, isn't it? Is this, how can we sing of the songs of Zion when we are in Babylon, but they taunt us, tell us to, to sing with the lyre, the songs of Mount Zion. He said, we can't do that. I'm a laughing stock. I'm taunted all the day long. In fact, verse 15, notice he, he uses two words, parallelism there. And this is a good example of, of Hebrew poetry, parallelism. He's filled me with bitterness. Another way to put that is he has sated me with wormwood. The same thing is stated in two different ways. It's Hebrew parallelism found throughout the, the, the Old Testament. I believe there's even some cases in, in the New Testament. Bitterness, we know that word wormwood may stick out to us because of, of revelation. The word wormwood is, is used there. If, I bet if you were to Google wormwood, you're going to get some crazy person who's predicting Jesus is coming in 2021. Don't worry, he predicted Jesus was coming in 2020. He just, you know miscalculated something. Um, but, but this word wormwood, it's used eight times in the Old Testament. And, and it, 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 it will appear later in verse 19 of this very chapter. You, you'll see it there. Uh, but it really, it, it describes a bitter and poisonous plant. But in that literal meaning, there's a metaphorical meaning. That is poison, uh, bitterness, uh, something like that. Let, let me give you two examples of this. Jeremiah 9.15, thus Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them wormwood to drink, poisonous water to drink. Amos 5, 7, O you who turn justice to poison, to wormwood, literally, and cast down righteousness to the earth. And here he uses that strong word, not used a whole lot. But, but use, nonetheless, to describe his, 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 own, his own suffering, the bitterness of his own soul. Verse 16 and 18, what sort of conclusions come, come to your mind there? Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Strong language, that is. And you notice what he says there in verse, verse 18. What is lost? The ability to endure and the hope that he has in the Lord. Right, this, this is a low point, isn't it? It's a very low point for the writer. I'm willing to bet you... You hear this more than you're thinking. All right, preacher. I thought this is a Christmas candlelight service. Shouldn't things be a little more jolly, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the second you hear Lamentations, you're thinking uh, Halloween was two months ago. I don't know if you got your, your, your calendar off a little bit, but we need to realign that. Of course, that is sort of what we think when it comes to Christmas, right? We want a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there will be snow, but I have a cup of cheer. I think an Irishman wrote that. Perhaps you're most familiar with what is one of the most famous poems in, uh, uh, in, in, the world, in modern history. The conclusion is, as I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his toes, foot. Sorry, His clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back. He looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled. His dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses. His nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow. And the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth. And the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. Sounds like a... Baptist preacher uh, at fellowship. He was chubby and plump, see what I mean? A right jolly old elf. And I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. 
A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave, gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word and went straight to his work and filled all the stockings then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle and away they all flew like down of a thistle. And I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight. You know what it is. Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Now that is Christmas, right? I mean, if it weren't for Coca-Cola commercials, that's what we would think about Santa, right? So the problem is it's not Christmas, is it? It's not real. Think about it. The reason parents and grandparents enjoy Christmas is because we get to see in our children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, uh, cousins, who uh, strangers down the other end of the street, whatever it might be, we get to see that holly jolly joy in them that, if we're honest, we sort of lost with each passing year. With the stress of an overstretched schedule, the chaos of life, anxiety, bitterness, fear and doubts, it's a reminder, really, not of, of, of what we've lost. You add to it the, the pain of life itself. An empty chair that was once filled with someone we love. A tradition that's been lost because of circumstances. We wish Christmas was holly jolly all the time. But it isn't. Oh, and by the way, let's add international pandemic and a health crisis on top of it. And a contentious election year where Americans have been throwing Molotov cocktails at each other for six months. For many, particularly this year, Christmas isn't a holly jolly time because we don't live in a holly jolly world. And yet there is a change in verse 19. Notice we, we go from that chaotic world to comfort. You tell me in verses 19 to 21, what, what, what words stick out to you? I tell you, verse 19 to 20, one word is used twice. That's probably important when it comes to Hebrew. It's the word, remember, in fact, it's referenced three times, but, but the word itself is used twice. Remember. Remember my affliction, my wanderings. Then he goes, verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Again, Lewis is so helpful here as he goes through his own grief. I, I love, this part of my favorite quote from the whole book. Feelings and feelings and feelings, he writes. Let me try thinking instead. I love that. The writer, you see, turns his attention away from his own sorrow back to the throne of God. What a change of perspective this is. The truth is, if you turn inward to your pain, focus exclusively on your pain, you want to know the only thing you will find there? More pain. You begin to justify your pain, wanting to spread your pain, wanting to share your pain, wanting other people to join in with your pain. You don't want sympathy from others. You want empathy with others. You want others to, 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 to be in the sort of pain that you're in. And if they're not, well, well, now you're more painful because they're not joining in the chorus. Ah, but if we look to the throne and remember, God hasn't moved. God is still on his throne. God is still in control. Suddenly, we don't see our pain as clearly as we once did. In fact, notice how strange verse 21 is. This I call to mind, which is a reference to remembering, and therefore I have hope. I mean, come on. 
This is terrible poetry. Let's be honest. As American evangelicals, we know this is bad poetry. Right. Well, we'll go back to the verse 18. Hope perished. Now he's got hope. Would you make up your mind? I mean, come on. Either you're having a bad day or everything's going to be all right. It can't be both. Which, which, which one is it? It's striking, isn't it, how with navel-gazing amid pain, what it will do. There you will only find despair. But in the Creator, in our Redeemer, there is always hope. You see, when He chose to remember God upon His throne, even as David had lost his, there he remembers where his help comes from. Again, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in a building called the temple. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But look at verses 22 and 24. What, what sort of conclusions stick out to you? He speaks of the steadfast love of the God never ceasing. His mercies never cease. They're new every morning. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? What a change of perspective that is. If God is certain and unmovable, so then are His promises. So then is His presence. God's love is a steadfast love. God's mercy greets us with every new day. In 1866, in Franklin, Kentucky, a prolific poet was born by the name of Thomas Chisholm. Chisholm. I'm sure I mispronounced that, but you don't know who he is either, so it doesn't matter. He became a school teacher at age 16. I'm just going to let that linger out there right now. Sort of go back to my, my point that we, we don't raise children to be to men. We, we sort of wait too long. Anyways, he's, he's a teacher at 16. Um, he left that and later became a, a, worked at a newspaper. Out of that, he, he became an ordained minister, began a ministry of preaching until health and other circumstances forced him into an early retirement from ministry. He later moved to New Jersey, and there he, he lived as an insurance agent. Now, much of his life was spent sick and poor, unable to provide for himself or his family. So in 1923, so he, he's about 40 years old, he, he sent some of his poems to, to a good friend of his, a man by the name of William Runyon, Runyon was a uh, musician at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, still around. If you're in Chicago, I encourage you to go there. It's a fascinating place. And if you're there, pick me up a few books. So, so Runyon's going through this pile of poems that Chisholm had, had, had written, and one stuck out to him. And this one poem in particular stuck out to him because he could tell it was written in the context of pain and suffering and travail. The emotion of the text just, just really spoke to him. And so, so he, he thought he would take this poem and he would put it to music. And regarding that process, he, he said, This particular poem held such an appeal that I prayed most earnestly that my tune might carry over its message in a worthy way. I want to read to you that poem. You tell me if it sounds familiar. Or where Chisholm got the words. It starts with this. Great 
is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow or turning with thee. Thou changest not your compassions, they fail not. As you have been, you forever will be. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to your great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endures. Thine own dear presence to cheer and the guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I'll see. All I have needed your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You see, in the rubble of his own life, what anchor did Chisholm hold on to? The God of promise, the God of presence. Amid the rubble of his home, what did Jeremiah cling to? God's promises, God's presence. Isn't that in a nutshell what Christmas is really about? Isn't it in a nutshell about God's promises fulfilled in Christ and God's presence seen in Christ? In fact, Jesus is all over this text. For the sake of time, look, look with me back to verse 1 to 6. We'll just read it real quickly. I'm the man who has seen, uh, seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and avails me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. And you can keep going if you want to. Now, let's, let's be honest here. This is, this is poetry. It's metaphor. Jeremiah's bones probably aren't literally broken. His skin isn't literally wasted away with leprosy or something like that. It's not the point. It's metaphor. It's poetry. We, we, we get the symbolism there. That's the beauty of poetry. This is that it can communicate in ways that narrative can't. But let's imagine that it is a narrative. Who, who else but Christ could this be describing? I'm not saying he has Christ in mind, but how can we on this end of the cross read these words and not think, who is it that has seen affliction greater than Jeremiah? Is it not Christ? Who else has been driven into darkness without any light but he who was buried in the tomb? Who else has, feels as if, if God's hand himself is, is against him? Who else has, has, has been wasted away? Who else has been besieged and enveloped with bitterness and tribulation? Who else more than, than Christ? You see, if God's wrath over Jerusalem in 587 B.C. was a call to repentance, how much more so was the cross? You see, Christmas centers on the great faithfulness of God. We read earlier from Luke chapter 2, the first seven verses are significant. In those days, it says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration on Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered in his own town. You know the rest of the story, right? Joseph packs up his bags, takes his girl with him, who's very pregnant, by the way. And, and what didn't take, take, take a, a nice SUV, but probably did a lot of walking, probably rode on some donkeys. Uh, that's rough, right? Right there. He travels all the way down south and into Bethlehem. We, we, we know the story, right? 
Now think about how often do we overlook the historical context that Luke sets for us. Augustus is Caesar, Quirinius is, is, is governor, and it is a chaotic time. Do not forget, Luke says, we are under the oppression of violent, unjust Rome. And it is in that chaotic world God steps down into a form of a babe. God entered in Christ to a world influenced with power and injustice and violence. But when we see the manger, we we don't see the chaos. We see God. We don't see confusion. We see Christ. And he's never left us ever since. Think about it. If you stay in Luke chapter 2, there's there's this strange little scene, right? The shepherds are out there minding their own business, checking Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, in the darkness, shines heavenly lights. And and we would like to think, if if we were there, because we're self-righteous moderns, if we were there, we would say, well, thanks for turning lights on. Now I can see where all the sheep are, right? Count one, two, no, no, no. What was the response? Chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, they were filled with great fear. No wonder they're, they're standing with those who have been in the presence of God. More so, we see this is the standard feelings of everyone that lived as a Jew in the Roman world. At any second, the Romans could come and take what is yours in order to to pay for for this or that, to subjugate you even more. Herod could come and take more of what is yours, your your daughter, your wife, your possessions, your property, your your, your inheritance, all of it could could be gone. At any second, plague or disease or, or war or just murder could happen. Everyone lived amid fear. But what is the message of the angels to the shepherds? No fear, they say. Why? Because glory to God in the highest, who has come down in a babe. Therefore, on earth, peace among men. You see? What the angels do is they, they stand in the rubble of human history, human relationships, and the ugliness and the brokenness that is you and I. And the angels sing. Because on that day, everything changed. You see, if we remember the promises of God, if if we hope in the presence of God, we don't need to fear. We can stand in the middle of a ravaged city, a nation full of fear and uncertainty, and sing, great is your faithfulness. Let's pray.